Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Paula Price Show, where you can experience scripturally organic, culturally unmodified teaching, get answers to your questions, and receive powerful prayer from your host, Dr. Paula Price, author of the Prophet's Dictionary. Tune in now and get ready for an exciting time of encouragement and transformation. Welcome your host, Dr. Paula Price. Well, good morning. It's Thursday. It's an exciting Thursday. Well, to me, all of the Thursdays are exciting. Welcome to the Jesus and Paula show. You're not going to have a blast putting him first. He's been, I think he's been having a blast because he's been, like, running with it. You know, if you're going to put God's name on something, he's going to take over and tell him to leave it alone, which will never come out of my mouth. But welcome to the show this week. I'm excited about it. Hey, today you get me as, you, as we began. Me, me, and, well, so my team is taking a much-needed rest, and so I am here today to talk to you about leadership. One of the things that the Lord has been impressing upon me is that you all have to know me and all my other abilities. You know, people come to our events, they encounter my staff and my team, we always get compliments, people are usually impressed. And they always commend us on the team we have, on my team's um, duty, demeanor, decorum, decorum, etiquette, and uh, service. That it always happens. And sometimes it, it can appear that that's magical, or that's what they brought to us. Now they did bring to us um, this particular organization some amazing gifts and talents, some amazing experiences. But nonetheless, they still needed to be nurtured and developed for what God called us to do. So when I take on the leader, my first thought is that I need to get the person into the product that God can rely on. So it's always about instrumentality. We want to make the, our leaders the instrument that they are. So they do bring leadership meetings. We do a lot of leadership meetings. And so I never talk about them. I've, over the years, you've heard me talk scripture, Bible. You've heard me talk a lot of things. I've written several leadership manuals. We have meet leadership guides. Those of you who are enrolled in Price University are reading some of those guides and using those manuals. And, are, and I've written numerous textbooks. I have assessments that we do to, to uh, really standardize and uniform. Because the reason for an assessment is that you want to not only just extract information, but you want to standardize and uniform that particular person for what God has called you to do or for why your organization exists. So he's been on me to shift. So I'll be shifting a little bit and sharing with you what I have developed and used to develop to develop my people and things I've created. I've got so many tools and so many instruments and guides and guidelines, and, and they have quite a bit of training, and it's not just training, reading somebody's book and coming away saying, this is how I feel about it, this is how it affected me. Really, when someone is coming into a leadership position, how what they read affects them is only important to the extent that it's transforming them, that it's informing them, and then moving to conforming them, and then transforming them. So we have leadership meetings. I meet with my top leadership once a week um, for my uh, church, another for my university, another for my company, 
and, and, and we are I'm always in it because I found out that leadership is like taking care of a precious artifact. You can't just let it sit and collect dust because eventually it won't, it won't radiate. Eventually it won't draw. It won't appeal. So they have a lot, and you're going to hear some of it. Of course, if you want to get the entire program, you do need to enroll in Price University because we have a strong leadership program that is multidimensional. So it has the conversion of touch points, spirit, soul, body, mind, heart. You know, it's important that you recognize that leadership cannot just take care of the manual stuff. And I have a standard where I say from heart to head, head to hand, hand to feet, needs to meet. So there is, you know, you have to have things that people can connect with. So I, I, I love developing people. And obviously, God called, God's calling my life. But I wanted to tell you that we're going to shift a little bit. And we're going to talk about the things that, that come from the changed heart or the unchanged heart, the things that comes from the developed soul or the undeveloped soul or the unconverted soul. There are some signs and tips, techniques that you need to understand. Many times people are trained in know-how without knowledge. You know, Paul talks about a zeal that's devoid of knowledge. And so people are often trained on technique as opposed to theory or just plain old comprehension. So you'll know the difference. There are some people that don't need much more than technique training, but you need to know the position that requires that or that will suffice on that. You need to know that because you might be placing people in thinking positions and they just need to be in doing positions. So you need to understand that. Thinkers are a whole different um, body of workers and supporters and leaders, you know, which is why we have the popular phrase today, thought leaders. You know, you need a leader who can first take the lead in their own thoughts because as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. So you can put a person in this real powerful position, maybe because of nepotism, maybe because of cronyism, maybe because of loyalty, maybe because because of reciprocity. You can have a whole lot of reasons. You just want to pay him back for something. But the bottom line is you have to understand whether the person's thoughts can translate into action and then transmit that action motivationally and incentively to those who must carry it out. So, you know, many of us have heard the argument, you know, companies start going into difficult times and they start laying off people, and the, the manualist, that handler, that hands-on person, fucks it. I don't understand. We do our work. So why are we getting laid off? Has to do with really the quality and caliber of talent. Because you have to ask yourself, if you, if, if, you know, if you want somebody to handle your computer or to keep your computer going, do you want the person who's good at keystroking or do you want the person who's good at software? See, because we can stroke keys all day long, but if they don't connect with why we're doing it, so the internals of your leadership are important. May I take a moment right now and, and just to... Uh, encourage you to share, share, share. If you are a business owner, if you know a business owner, if you are a leader, I don't care whether it's in the church or out of the church, because there are just universal uh, rules and universal protocols that just transcend, you know, 
our faith transcend our fields, our differences. And so you need to do that. Come, uh, let them know. Share, 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 and share again. Because uh, I've done this for 30 years, and, and I know most of you will be surprised at how much we ha- I have accomplished just to get God's people to the point where they can produce what he needs, whether they are going to produce in the church for the Savior or whether they are going to produce in the kingdom for the sovereign. And those are two different branches of leadership, and they require two different uh, um, aspects of training. You know, what you have to do in your church is not the same for what you have to do in your job. That is why you can have someone who has um, a, a job janitorial position or something like that in their career, but in their church, that spiritual attributes work well as a deacon or some sort of a minister in the church. You see, there are reasons why that happens. So if you want to start digging into it a little bit on your own, I want to encourage you after this broadcast today to go and take my minister's assessment questionnaire. It's going to tell you where you fit, how you fit, and, and whether or not you are leadership potential. Because you have to be leadership potential before we can, the potential has to be there. That means the potency, the, the ingredients, you know, the attributes must be there in you, waiting for development to be turned into a power and a faculty. And so what, you, the way I've been developing our leaders is that we, we deal with the whole person. We don't just deal with your anointing. We don't just deal with your gifting because they will, what they get in, in the development process is incidental. By incident, and incident by incident, they're going to be developed. Your anointing can only increase by all of your physical, psychological, neurological, et cetera, emotional attributes which is why highly anointed people can only work in highly energized, highly, uh, 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 what do you call it, highly, uh, what do you call it, um, activity, high activity environment. In other words, it works on their cue. In the cue, their anointing works on the performance, but it does not have any ration. There's no rationale to it. That's why you all are irritated because you're like, but this is an irrational person or this doesn't make any sense. This is illogical. And many of you know it's illogical, but you won't say it in the church because you don't want people to think you're worldly. So let me give you some deliverance today. Before there was a church, there was a world. And there are several passages of Scripture that I use to let you know that God established the world, even his own, on various principles and practices and protocols that are, again, universal. For example, Scripture says that the pillars of the earth are God. God. When you look up pillar, it's a support thing, support being. He said God established the pillars. The shields of the earth are the Lord. Yes, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. So you need to stop trying to please your, your spiritual perception and begin to please and replicate that which the Almighty set in motion and has kept using since the foundation of the world and, frankly, since before the foundation of the world. Want to have a little interjection? I'm going to do my own commercial today. Look at me. I'm telling you, look at me. You know, Apostle Ashley, you need to watch me. I'm getting ready to talk about this week's archive, the archive of the week. I can do this. Hallelujah. Listen, 
to this, this archive is called Organic Apostleship. Now, it was so funny. They said, well, the title is Organic Apostleship. So you, you want me to write? No. I, talk, I wrote this. I have several manuals on apostleship for training apostles in our AIT program, Apostles in Training program. And so one of, you know, all of them talk about the difference between uh, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is organic, versus the apostles of the world, which are cultural. So you want to know which one you are. Well, again, take that assessment, the minister's aptitude questionnaire, because it will talk to you about who you are and how you think. So this particular idea, the idea of organic apostleship is going with our so-cool premise, scripturally organic, culturally unmodified. And so this is talking about what an apostle really does based on the Lord Jesus Christ, his choice of the 12, and then his resurrection or post-resurrection choice of Paul and the remaining apostles that took this thing to the Gentiles. I want you to do it. Now, I'm telling you, I know she's going to type up some stuff, bless her heart. She'll type up a few things or whatever she's doing. But you need to recognize that this is important for you to understand what a real apostle is. You know, Paul, um, the Lord chided Ephesus and, and, uh, and another of the seven churches, and he said, you know, you have those that say they're apostles but are not, and they lie. You have to know that because if you're, if you're fascinated with the title and fascinated with the idea or have you romanticized the New Testament and have a special affinity for the book of Revelation, you may not be equipped enough to determine which ones belong to the synagogue of Satan and which ones don't, which ones belong to the everlasting ecclesia of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's just a little tidbit, but I think it's enough to get you hooked. So you want to go and get your archives of the week, and you want to understand. And don't, don't say to yourself, because that's a little bit misleading, well, I'm not an apostle. Yeah, well, you know what? The scriptures were written by apostles. The church was founded by apostles. The church was never founded evangelical. It was never found to be evangelical. It was always meant to be apostles if you're going to stay in Scripture. And in order for us to come, now I'm all right with evangelical, because frankly, I think they did a great job taking this thing around the world. So this is not a whatever. But you have to know that everything God does in the New Testament begins with apostles, and everything God did in the Old Testament or reminiscent of it began with prophets. There's a reason why 1 Corinthians 12.28 says first apostles, secondarily prophets, and thirdly teachers. There's a reason, and there's a reason why the Lord Jesus promised that of, of all of the offices that he had, that the apostles were going to sit on 12 thrones with him throughout eternity, judging his people, judging Israel, not the nation, but the body. It's so important that you, that you hear that. And so when we talk about apostleship, I think every Christian should know. I mean, every Christian should know that Apostles started this thing. God, when Jesus came to the planet, the first and only office he instituted was that of the apostles. Everybody else had already existed. He just needed to bring them under the new covenant. And I love it. So, and for my, my beloved theologians who want to give me all of this traditional church opinion and position on it, I'm going to go with the, the position of the founder. I think if I go with the position of the founder, I go with the position of the author and finish of our faith. I probably did it more to his liking. It may not be all of that 
you know, approved by the traditional church. These people have a lot invested in their misapplication or misinterpretation. There's a lot invested in this. I don't have such investment. I got one thing. I'm, I'm like the Apostle Paul. All I know is Jesus and him only crucified. All I know is the resurrection and the life. I know that. And since I know that it's all about a person and not about a text, not about a print, then I'm okay in understanding the person who has downloaded to my soul his life, his experience. So you want to get this organic apostleship, and you want to make sure whether you are a, a, I don't care about your denomination. I don't care about any of that. All of that is what works for earth. You know, God says, I don't save denominations, and I don't save religions. He said, I save people. And so those that are pleasing to God, the people who meet his criteria for eternal life, that's what he says. God is working with people, and he's allowing his work in people to manage the organizations and institutions and the other outgrowths of the new creation spirit. And they are merely just outgrowths. And they, you know, they work. They work sometimes, sometimes they don't. You know, I don't have a criticism. I know a lot of people who are teach like this. They've got all of these criticisms about the, uh, the denominations. I don't. I think the denominations have done a phenomenal job considering what they had to face getting things done. But I do believe that far too many of them today have lost their way. And they've lost their way because you can't step away from apostleship and the prophetic. You can't dismiss the apostles and prophets or dismantle what they established as the early church and not eventually veer off course because they are the roadmap, they're a pathway. So, again, organic apostleship, you want to get it. When this broadcast is over, go online and get your copy. If you are an apostle, you definitely want to get it. If you're a prophet, you most assuredly want to get it. If you're a pastor, you want to understand your relationship with apostles and prophets, how, how God made it work, how the early founding, the prototypical ones, the archetypical ones made it work. You need to know that because God always rescues his house with prophets and apostles. Always. Whenever we get off point, he does it. You know, when Saul got crazy, he used Samuel and David to establish what he wanted. And David is a monarch, so, you know, he ends up as the apostle, as the sovereign, as apostle, and then, of course, the prophet and the king. He, it works. And priesthood fits into the apostleship under the New Testament. Now, just as I wrap up this particular subject, you should know that when you ask yourself, what is the prophet in the New Testament versus the Old Testament, you're going to appreciate the fact that the only difference is it was for one nation. God literally used Israel as a prototype. And so through that prototype, he was able to take that archetype that was in heaven, which Hebrews 12 talked about, and send it to all nations. Remember, the only difference is all nations versus one nation. I know we made all of these technical, you know, theoretic and rhetoric, it doesn't matter. It's really one nation versus all nations. God was taking what he had perfected in his template in Israel, and he was now applying it to all nations, which is why Paul can write in Ephesians that, that, that we, the Gentiles, were brought into the commonwealth of Israel, and Israel was brought into the commonwealth of eternity. It's such a great story. So you're going to love it. But I want to get back to where we're talking today because this is going to be exciting. So it's going to be 
Look at this. Jesus Christ and Paul of Christ, we're a team. I absolutely love working for this man. They cannot hurt my feelings about him. They cannot insult me because, I know, you know, when I grew up as a Baptist girl, because I did grow up Baptist-ish, I would like to put ish on the end of it because, you know, you hardly went to church. When you went, you hardly knew what they were saying, you know. And so, and that, that has to do with the churches that we chose, not necessarily the, the institution uh, as a whole. But so I said to this, I'm like, um, but I, I didn't know Jesus. Most of you are like that. You didn't know Jesus. You know, I thought. But I grew up Baptist, and I, you know, I, I went to church occasionally. When I got in trouble and I needed the church, it was a Baptist church I sought out because that's all I know. My mom was raised Catholic and was converted um, to, you know, being a Baptist. But as far as being clear on Jesus, nah, mm-mm, no clarity on Jesus. We were clearer on, you know, particularly if being African-American, you know more about your culture, you know about your ethnicity, you know about your struggle, you know about Martin, you know about John Kennedy, you know about all of those things, but you don't really know the God of all creation or the Savior you hope to spend eternity. So that was an experience for me growing up, and it didn't start until I was almost 30, about 30, I'm thinking. Up until that point, you know, I didn't know. But once I made up my mind to join Christ, I'm glad I joined him. He just actually picked me up off the side of the road. But then I realized who Jesus is and that he is the sovereign of all. He introduced himself to me as the creator and sovereign and not just savior. And my training track with him has always followed that course. So we're going to talk about, well, what is that course? What is it all about? So today it's going to be the real world of leadership. I want to talk to you about the real world of leadership. And I'm going to talk to you about a lot of the, the, the subjects and topics and courses that I've used to develop my team. And, and so that, that they, it makes sense why they can think, you know, why they are able to stand and, and, and have that demeanor. And it's not a weekend thing. They don't, you, don't, you don't finish my courses in a weekend. If you're going to do a weekend, it's because I'm going to be training you for an event. Because anything more than an event means more than a weekend, means more than three weeks or four months. If I want you to, to stay in your leadership position and thrive in that position for more than a year, I'm going, I'm going to give you at least a year of training for entry level. Because my tools break it down. We, we start with entry level, novice, entry, intermediate, advanced, master. You all... Don't be so quick to get the help that you don't develop the leader. I want to say that again. Don't be so quick to get the help that you fail to de- develop the leader because that's why so many people are disturbed. Or you, you turn around and you get somebody who says, well, I worked in nothing what ministry all these years, and so I can bring that. They're not just going to bring their skill set. They're not just going to bring their experience. They're going to bring that ministry into yours. So you will lose control, which is why what happens? I'm all for organic. I'd rather take the time to raise my own and know that we have we have more than a, a fidelity bond. We have a unity and we have a love and affection for each other that that works through the normal difficulties that are associated with developing an organization or building people who are going to build it. So I will tell you right now, do not that's a big mistake. 
That's why we have to turn around. We have people shifting, folks thinking that leadership in God is upward bound. No, no. God says his gift and calling are without repentance, and they're before the foundation of the world. So you need to know not only if God gifted, but did God make that gift a calling? And is that calling sufficient enough for you to make that calling a chosen? That's, it's, a, it's a big deal to do this. It's a big deal to find the right people. And it, it takes time, and you've got to be willing to outlast the devil's fleeces because he's going to send those fleeces in. And you're so desperate. I just need help. I just I love today's technology. You can get a lot of help and not have to be bothered with people. It's a wonderful thing. You know, you get the little solo gig or you can get the, you know, virtual this and the virtual. I love this. And that's what really gave me a, another shot. So today we're going to talk about the real world of leadership, how you see it and how it is. Because when you start considering people for leadership, you need to find out how they see it. First of all, you need to explore yourself. You need to explore how you see. What do you think leadership is? Do you think leadership is just getting something done, getting a helping hand, having somebody step in and, and just, you know, hold up your arms? You know, we give you all a little theological abstract. Just hold up your arms. Just stand there. Well, you know, oh, come on. You're going to go to the office and like, oh, hold up arms. You know? And we don't, nobody bothers to say what that looks like in an operational context in a service context. And so they don't tell you. They just say, well, just go hold up. And we do, well, you know, we do the demeanor because we never come out of theology to get into rationality. We just don't. And so we have to do that. So when people come to me, they want to espouse all that stuff. And I'm just like, hmm? so what does that look like? Am I going to sit at my desk in my office? And you just gonna, you two are just going to stand there and hold up my arms. Because if that's the case, three of us are not getting anything done. <laughs> you can't, you're not at your desk getting done what needs to be done. I'm not able to do even though that my desk because you got my arms tied up. <laughs> you see, some of this stuff doesn't, doesn't really make sense. I'm going to pour cold water on your hands. First of all, I don't want cold water on my hands. I said, man, when I go to the public restaurants and all they got is cold water. Because I just think that's a psych act. But, um, so I, I don't need to wet my hands. So you want to say, well, Dr. Price, you know we're just talking examples. We're talking. But then explain the example. Because you have to actionize your demonstration. They must be actionized. How do they act out? The reason people think so, so uh, fairy tale-ish about ministering God is because they're running on holding up their hands in my office which is holding me up and hindering me, or pouring water on my hand, and nobody goes through the process of saying, what does that look like? Even today, the high point of a prophet and an apostle's attainment is that they can take that, that ancient word of God and the eternal word of God and apply it in a contemporary context to contemporary issues. The reason that you all are being talked out of the Bible is because teachers – the teachers who were supposed to make the Bible relevant to your era and your age have not done so for themselves. They certainly can't do it for you. You know, when you, if you, want, when you think about the word relevant, how it's used and how it began, two different things. We'll talk about that in the future. But know this, the word relevant is, uh, is basically summed up as 
does what you do or is what you're doing fitting the circumstances that require a special need, attention, or care? When you ask, is the church relevant, you have to say, well, are we still caring for people? Are we meeting the needs of today? And then you can't put an indictment on the entire ecclesia. You just have to take it out. You have to identify, isolate the congregations that are not. So now that you are a leader, this now this comes from an article that uh, I give. It's in their leadership package, orientation package. We have so we have God as a thinker. Now that you are a leader, what leadership will do up on a, on and off? Um, but now that you are a leader, is this one? So I've laid hands on you. We've breathed you up. You got oil for days. We've had prophecy. Words have been spoken over you, you know, and all of that, decreeing and declaring your excellence. Now this is Sunday service. Now it's Monday morning. What do you do with all that just happened on Sunday? Where do you go? Well, first of all, to be honest with you, this is a follow-up because in order for you to become a leader in my organization, it requires an intense training. And you know why? Because I'm not in it to fail, and I'm not in it to fail my God, and I'm not in it to give him mediocrity. I'm not going to talk about how superior Jesus is, how excellent he is, how he's the supreme being, and we talk about and give him substandard workers. I'm not doing it. So, you know, people say, well, you know what? I just thought she'd be big. No, I'm not big, but I'm good. I'm not as big as you imagine, but I'm good because I need to have a strong leadership team who, is, who understands not only my vision, but first God's vision. We had all these classes on vision of the house and did not worry about the vision of the father. And we just said, well, just pick him up like he's punctuation, colon, comma, semicolon, dash, hyphen, dash, dash. See, he's, Jesus is not a punctuation on my mission, my vision, my mandate. I don't use his name. I don't use his, his history or fame to punctuate what I'm doing. And so that's part of it. Jesus is just, that's why people can, you know, you, you feel like people can change words leading up to punctuation to a lot of things. So in order for them to do it, we have a whole ordination textbook. They got a pass. They've got to do defenses because I need to know what you're going to say. They have portfolios. If you ever come to my organization, you will see all of these leaders' portfolios so that God is not the only one that knows what they're going to do when they get a position. Some children like that. Because <laughs> most people, we put them in position, only the Lord knows what they're going to do and what they won't do once you have authorized them. I think that's good. What do you think? So I need you to be to think differently. If you plan to win, then put winners in position. And don't put winners in position who declare their win. You want to put winners in position who have demonstrated and then established their win, their way of winning. I need to know that. And when I develop leaders, you know, a lot they all come in. Because, you know, people come in class and they want to show me, I'm not this, we don't really need what you do, Dr. Price. I'm only here to help you out. If you're here to help me out, leave. Because I need you to be here to fulfill commission. I need you to be here to more than help me out. I need you to be here to shoulder the load. 
Because see, when people think help out, they think taking out the garbage, standing at the door, handing out some brochures, you know, carrying my suitcase, my luggage. That's what they think help is. That's not a help ministry. I'm going to do some food and some cooking. I'll maybe do it. No. I need thought leaders. I need burden bearers. I need critical thinkers. I need a whole bunch of attributes that go beyond what you'll do for church and what you'll do for Sunday service. Because serving in your church and serving in God's realms, they're not the same. And they require different sets of of, of skills, and they require very distinct bodies of knowledge. And you should have it. So now that you're a leader, a real-world vision, I always love giving this talk. <clears throat> Can you all see? Is it coming up? Okay. I love giving this talk. The first thing you need to do is know is that you're in leadership to change or stay the, or keep things the same, or some people decide to blame everything that was done before them or their ineptitude, their mediocrity, to embrace and claim it. Now, I like claim because you, if you don't claim it, you will not do well in it. You will fail. Because you know how we had this thing, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it's me, I'm gonna say it's the Lord. The Lord's gonna say it's you, because when you mess up, he's judging you, he ain't gonna judge himself. <laughs> he's judging you. When you fail, when you slip up, God doesn't so is he gonna judge me that I'm gonna claim the fact that he gave this to me and that I'm equipped for it or do what it takes to become equipped. So that's important. One of the things that I do not like my leaders to do is blame. Don't come to me with I don't want to hear it. That's a psychological flaw. You need to fix it. Because I tell them all the time, everything rises and falls on leadership, which is why leadership is always what people are pursuing or what people are maintaining, securing, etc. Depopulating that leadership spectrum in your church is a big deal. It should not be rash. It should not be impulsive. And it should not be just for the sake of expediency. You have to make sure that people can keep up with what God gave you, that they can carry it out, you know, and walk it out. So now that you're a leader, I give this talk the day after everybody just comes in, now that you're a leader, because you know why, because we have this whole secular seduction, because it is a seduction, there's no truth in it. When you look at, and the reason why I say that is because what people say and what they actually walk out and produce or ignite, that's a different thing. So you hear the one that says, well, leadership won't change me. That is the biggest lie and the biggest, I'm telling you, the most formidable stroke of failure prediction you can ever have. Leave my, I'm, 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 I'm going to say the same. I'm telling you, it's not, I'm going to say it the same way. It won't change me. I mean, because that's all, all it is is the title. If it's just the title to you, then you're not a leader. Because titles carry inherent potency, authority. That's, you need your governor to have a title. You might want to call him Bill, Betty, whatever, but your governor's title is what you want because you want a person in that office, and that office has a name, and that name of that office is the title. Now, you know that's good. Are y'all wrong with me? <laughs> see, so you hear this whole bet. We don't need titles. The only people, let me tell you something, whenever you see a move, to take down titles, you need to know they're taking down the institution. Mm-hmm. 
because you cannot equalize and lateralize everybody. So the move to take down titles was to take down the church. And guess what? It did. It did. It worked. Because you need titles because titles are the name, the nomenclature, but the name of the position, the authority. You have to name that office something. I've got to name you something other than your personal name to say you're worth me paying you, you're worth me trusting you, you're worth me using you. Y'all like it? Titles came from God. God still gives us titles. He has no titles. The man said he said he has every name after every name that is under heaven. His titles came from God. Destruction of titles came from devils because they knew they could not breach those offices, so they caused you to disdain their dignity. So titles are the dignity. Dignity, before it became a, a, an etiquette, uh, a matter kind of thing, uh, if dignity spoke to the rank and the position and the authority of a particular person or leader based on what was the title of that office. And so the idea was that you entered the office, and the office had the dignity, and you entered into it, and as a result of knowing those dignities and practicing them, you became courteous. You became polite. Your mannerisms changed. You were operating on protocol. See, we, we kind of messed that up a little bit. That is why you have leaders are, are so, so upset with slumming and, and with, <clears throat> with their former life or really downgrading themselves to be just like the people. If we're just like the people, there is no leader. Because the purpose of leadership is to be unlike the people and to, and to bring them into a particular place, posture, character, function, action, sphere. That's the whole purpose. So, you know, I don't, my leaders don't expect me to hang out with them. They don't. They get, they get surprised. Oh, you showed up? Yeah, I'm going to show up for certain things, and I'm showing up for a minute. Because first of all, I don't want you, I don't want to know you that deeply in your casual self. <laughs> and I don't want you talking about whether or not I wipe my mouth after tissue, so it works out really good. So this is going from fascination to adaptation. Going from fascination to adaptation. Many people are in leadership not because they're inspired, but because they aspire to it. So they are aspirants. They aspire to be seen. Because in their mind, all they can see is the veneer, the surface of leadership, and the veneer that is depicted by our public motions and movements. They have no idea what it takes to be a leader at heart, to be a leader in the heart of their being and the leader at the heart of their organization. So they get excited, especially in church. Church leaders always, but I think it's the same thing within or out. But the whole idea is that they look at this picture and they get this, they get this snapshot in their mind that says, that's me. And they, they literally cast themselves in that position as that character that they admire. Well, I can stand up there and pray. I can prophesy. I can do that. I mean, God speaks to me, and and I can make this happen, and I can walk down the aisle like that, and I can collect the money and wear the cute little outfits or not. But the whole idea is fascination. 
Infatuation comes from delusion. It comes from self-imagination. It's imaginary leadership. And you're imagining yourself in that beneath, but not in that position. Because if we take you at your word and give you just a taste, you hear this, oh, no, this is more work than I thought. Oh, my goodness, this is hard. Huh. And, I mean, I try, you know, one of the reasons I like having a very um, demanding, rigorous, and it's rigorous training program is I like to see who drops out. Then I have to tell you that you don't fit. <laughs> see, when you drop out, then I don't have to fire you. I don't have to drop you from the class, and I don't have to give you a reason for why I'm passing you over. It's a weeder. Training is a powerful weeder. It will weed out all of the all of the, the deluded, the confused, the aspirants, the fascinating. It will weed all of that out. And that Jesus did. Jesus, I mean, telling you, the man, masterful. He preaches the sermon he knows is going to kick these people off. I mean, he stands there talking about, I am the bread of life. And if you don't, if, if, if you feast on me, you live forever. And I and he did the I am speech and folk got hot. They got so mad with this man, he got to preaching that sermon. He looked around, he had 12. <laughs> now, God had already told him to pick them. But whether they had staying power or not was yet to be proved. He ends up with, with 12 and one the devil. Even one devil gonna hang on this. <laughs> so he hangs. He got the, the twelve, and he and he just said it. He got the team he wanted by preaching according to what the people refused to hear. The people did not want to hear that this man, supposedly born of Joseph and Mary, is the creator of the universe, is the king of all creation, is the one that their life hangs in the balance on. Those people didn't even know that their lives hung in the balance, depending on this man's cross outcome. So he said, hey, are you going to? They're like, no, because your chosen don't go. If your chosen don't go, your curious will leave. Because your call often are the curious. And they will leave, and they'll leave with very articulate, eloquent arguments. Articulate reasons, eloquent arguments. They will read, their excuses will sound so good, even you want to say they're right. And you know they're wrong. But the chosen can't go. And they'll tell you, I was leaving, but. Our story was over, but, and I mean, they will sit, and for a long time, until they get transformed, they will hang in there on their butt. (laughs) Yeah, but. The Lord told me, but. And so, that's the first, he did that first weed out. And Peter's like, so where we going? You're the only one that's got the words of eternal life. Where we going? I mean, even the devil needed the words of eternal life. Anybody that you said, but then I choose you 12 and one of y'all to do? One of you is a position? I chose you. I, and so God chooses the devils in your life. And he has to train them too. Because he must feed the light and the darkness. God, Jesus said, well, I need somebody to take care of my money. I know he's going to steal, but I'm going to have so much of it that it won't even be missed. And his life on this planet is very short, anyhow. 
So you have to ask yourself, am I fascinated or am I willing to be, to adapt to what's required? First adopt and then adapt. Because you have to adopt the life, the mindset, the, the thoughts, the motivations and inspirations of those people who are not just out front, but people who actually are leading people from somewhere to some place. Because if you're out front, then you're following somebody from no place to nowhere. Which is why, you know, I've been here doing this for all these years, and I'm still, if you're still, after all of those years, then you were with the front runner and not a leader. And front runners are not leaders. They, they are, tend to be very charismatic people. They are galvanizers. They're drawing cards. And they will draw, but they're not leaders. Because once they gather you, they don't know what to do with you. Once they get your attention, once they get your commitment, they don't know what to do with you. Some of you all are being blessed by what I'm saying right now. I don't know y'all are getting kicked off. That's all right. Y'all get hold of God. Because that's what happens. I've been in this church all these years, and I'm still the same. And the church is still the same. And whatever. And, I mean, and it's not even about the, the number growing. It's really about the, the progressive development of the people and their strength to pull in the reason that entity exists, to guard it, to govern it, to guide it, to galvanize the people when we have events, to go the scary and fearful, and to gut, to gut the devil. You got to do it. So what are we talking about? Well, here, I'll read this to you. To begin functioning, this is an excerpt from the manual. To begin functioning effectively in your new position, you need to be orientated to and acquainted with another side of leadership you may know little about. The business side that plans, thinks, governs, and decides what will or will not take place in an organization. The side that determines how things are going to happen in the business. The side that organizes administrate, and oversee the workings and dealings of the entity you serve. The side we are talking about is the world of leadership. Regardless of the position you hold today, any promotion means a series of changes will of necessity take place in your life. Do not be deceived by the old adage that says promotion will not change me. As much as we would like to think so, the opposite is actually true. The demands of an elevated position, many of which are out of the leader's immediate control, means you must change. Depending on how high or sensitive your new position is, you will be forced to grow, to give your best, and if your new post is critical, your all, your lifestyle, past activities, and pursuits will be drastically altered in many ways. Not only is this advice needful, it should be needed. You should be wise to expect the changes, and you should commit to them in order to prosper your new leadership post, no matter how trendy and liberating it sounds to declare beginning to declare the beginning that promotion to leadership will not change you. The truth is it does bring about and compel change. To keep, your, to keep your post and to fulfill the reasons you were appointed to it, rapid change 
will sweep your life at staggering rates. And here's why. Did you all need to hear that? Because you thought you were going to bring your old self, your convenient self, your cozy self, your casual self into your position. If your organization is serious about its purpose, its destiny, its elegance, its quality, and its effectiveness, you will have to change. And they will not hire you if you still talk about, yeah, well, you know, I got to still go and do so-and-so and do this and that. I understand that with, with devils in power, people, because the, the democracy is always going to make the people bash the institution and crush it and threaten it and trivialize it. That's just what happens. But I'm telling you, while all of that is fine, you need to look behind the obvious because there are people who are doing it. They might tell you, it's okay. Well, you know, I have to pick up my daughter every day at 3 o'clock, and I have to take my kids to soccer and all that. That's nice. And they will not argue with you. But you will notice they give you space to live your obligations, your personal and family obligations while you're in their employment. However, if they're serious, they're going to work around you. And you're going to find yourself worked around, worked around, and worked around. So we're not going to risk a lawsuit. We're just going to work around it. Why? Because you're not going to be there. You have to pick up your daughter. That's two, three hours. You're gone. You got to do the soccer rehearsal. That's another three, four hours. You understand? And so in their mind, if you can't work that out, how are you going to work their issues out? Mm-hmm. Just another point of view. So so you should just kind of follow the fact that whether you agree with if you're going to do the job, you will change. Your hours will change. Your, uh, your attire will change. If they are serious, if you're in a, a in, you know inconsequential position, fine. Like now, you know the whole idea that that this whole bullying spirit. Well, if you don't let me be myself, I'm gonna sue you. I'm gonna bring a case against you. I'm telling two things. I do know. If this is a, if leadership is universal, that's a temporary thing, and the pendulum is gonna bring you back. And we're gonna stop having the party girls and the Chippendale boys at work. Because in the end, in the end, a country that yields to that loses its grip on its station in life, and and they need to start sweating about number two and number three, because number two has launched a seduction that's going to cause them to slide out of their place, our nation's place. While we're pandering to the people, while we're pandering to temperaments, we're pandering to to back-end trenders and all of that, while we're doing that, we're slipping because we want people to feel comfortable. But I'm going to tell you something. Every every win loses ground every time. So if the people won on this, they're going to lose ground, and they're going to lose ground, and they're going to lose ground. And one of the things I know, a whole lot of nations perceive us, and a whole lot of nations in this era, Proceeded us, and where are they today? Mm-hmm. They got to unite because they can't have world power any longer because the rules are the rules are the rules. Watch the nations that work with the universal rules. I promise you, because that is what the shields of the earth and the guards of the earth and the pillars of the earth must uphold to keep the planet going. You may not see the deterioration, but these age-old forces and powers already know. They can see from the first. Uh, suggestions 
Why don't we, should we, and whatever. So I said that just as an aside, but getting back to our point, your position to leadership is going to have stunning demand, and you'll be stunned all the time. First six months to a year, you just walk around like in shock. <laughs> all you can do is just roam like a zombie, doing your job. You do it automatically, but your whole being is not able. So here's where your body performs, and the rest of you needs to come for and so all of the training and all of that is going to happen. Now, that is why I don't put you in position until you conform. Because if you're not going to conform in training, you're going to destabilize my organization because the position is going to conform you. And I can't have that kind of, you know, destabilization. So you have to have training. That's why universities have programs. That's why you have to go to college. They want college graduates because education is the first defense. It's not just a delivery system. It's not a, just a deliverer of knowledge, but it's a defense against failure and mediocrity. And it's a literally, it is a coherent because it coheres all of the, the common, established, and traditional assets and attributes of a position, of a field, and they synthesize it in a program called degree or knowledge. So if you haven't passed your training, you know, and I'm, one of the, I'm really kind of warm and fuzzy in the sense that my people tell you, I walk around here, I don't, I'm not going to talk about your training. That's not my job. I don't have to talk about it. And if I ask you, you better know I have a reason. First of all, I don't think about it. So I don't think about it because I'm doing my job. But I do know that your demand, the stunning demand, how you react to the demand will say how well prepared you were for the position or the training. So if you want to combine all the time, everything, point, God said if you fail in the day of adversity, it's because your strength is small. So your strength, your faculties, your abilities and capacities are too tiny to handle it, which is why you need to be in training. But that's okay, because training is to give you that. That's a place, safe place to fail, safe place to learn, safe place, place to shed, safe place to expose yourself. That's normal. And, and the church has cheated its, its workers and leaders, its future, by giving these people all of this power, all of this authority, and all of these privileges for no reason other than they're available. And usually, when you give it to them like that, they may appear available, but they're hardly ever accessible. So as you go on, you have to decide, I, 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 I want to win. I'm telling you, you cannot say we're going to be number one and you got everybody who hit, who got numbers one to three on their assessment. That's not going to work for you. You know, and we have to stop being ashamed or embarrassed about saying, I want the best of the best, the top of the top. I want the elite. If you're an apostles organization, you want that. You don't even know you want it, but you want it and you need it because what you have to do is too difficult. It's challenging. It is, and it faces enormous resistance. And you need resistors. You need educated resistors. It is very devious. So you need cunning people, you know, shrewd people, because Satan's coming. You need that. You need people with security. You need people who can think. You need people who can process. You need people who can give right assessment of situations, problem solvers. You cannot win, because no organization rises without problems, without resistance, without pushback, without trials. Those are normal. And to put people in who think that they don't exist because they're working for Jesus is to guarantee your organization will fly. 
Because, see, you got in your mind what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not going to do it. He's like, I'm, I got my duties. I'm working on <laughs> I'm keeping mine together. And I know it sounds funny. He said, like, he said that to me. I said, but God, you're supposed to do it. He said, well, I don't have to do it. I'll do it for me. I'll be with you. But I'm not doing your job for you. I'm not going to pick your people for you. So you, know how, you need to learn how to pick the right people. I'm not going to train your people for you. So you need to know how to train them because I told you to keep that which I'm entrusting to you. So you, I've entrusted it. Now you make it work. Israel, God gave them all that territory. But would you know what they had to do? They had to go in there just with that. Those occupants, the inhabitants that were there, they had to then take over their land, take over their businesses, were very, I mean, you know, very little, I won't say very little because to be honest with you, as slaves, they probably had a broad-based education doing all of that for their captors. So study demand. Yeah, they're going to happen, and they're going to be about a year to 18 months. And a quality leader will coach you through those demands, and they will coach you through the psycho-emotional reactions to them so that you can get settled in a position and settle your mind enough for it to be relied upon and for it to function. And then we have old views and opinions versus reality ones. You know, again, I'm getting in leadership because I like the obvious. I like the veneer. I like the, 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 the appearance. I like what they, what they look like they're doing. But then when you get into leadership, here's what you do. You get mad about the meeting. Oh, I can't read I mean it. Yeah, leaders meet. Okay? We meet. You just want to creep, but we meet. Leaders meet because we have to make sure we're in one mind. Meaning guarantee one-mindedness. Not just single-mindedness, but one-mindedness. They meaning reduce the, the confusion of, I don't know, nobody told me who said, I don't know. They are leaders, leaders allow communication, they allow trainings, they allow design, it allows a lot of things that will see to it that that picture you like happens on purpose, on time, all the time. And so I listen to the people when I want to, when I want to uh, bring them in, I listen to them. Um, do I have a business meeting? First of all, I'm surprised you don't want to be in a dump. Something is wrong with you if you don't want to be in a dump. Because most, literally, most seriously aspiring leaders want to be in the know because they consider everything as, as adding to or developmental for their goal, even if it's just for their consciousness. So you have to tell them, no, you do, not, you do not have to be in this meeting. You know, you do not have to do this. No, you don't have, you're not responsible. And then when you're in the meeting, they want you to speak. Oh, God, they want me to speak. Oh, all right, bad enough, I showed up. I didn't plan anything to speak, but I was a clue. You should have planned. You're going to be in the meeting. Now I get rid of these guys. Um, you're gonna be, if you're going to be in the meeting, you're going to be expected to participate. I do. I know a lot of you all, you come and you think your meeting is going to be a glorified prayer session and Bible study, testimonial. Not me. Not here. We do that on Sundays. We do that in the middle of the week. We do that on our telecalls. But when we are in our office, when we're in our building, you're going to work. And if, we call, if I call you to a meeting and you come and talk about it, I didn't know what you want, I'm telling you, I will not argue with you. I'll just move on. Because you should have known purpose of coming to a meeting is to present or participate. <laughs> but is that right? So when they, when they come, and, and usually, here's the thing, you'll say, well, nobody told me. And you know what my question, my answer is? You should have gone and found out, because all these other people knew. 
And sometimes people don't tell you because they want you to win. You know? <laughs>
complaint, impulse, whining, that's not the leadership. That's what we move out of leadership. That's what we weed out. You know what I'm saying? So I listen, there's a whole lot of weed. Because, you know, when you work in, a, in an organization where your people are close with you and they can kind of get to you, they forget who you are. And they forget that you can't stop being who you are. You just, I can't stop caring about my organization. I can't stop wanting to be, I can't stop wanting innovation, ingenuity. I cannot, I, I, that's just built because I do it. I do it. Many of you don't know how much of an inventor I am. I am a solutionist. I don't like things not to work, and they know it. I don't like it. I come in and don't see a light bulb. I don't just say, ooh, that light went out. I, I say, why didn't my leaders know that that light was gone? Because I should never know the light was not if you are, you have initiative. I should have never known that. I shouldn't have had to encounter the garbage or all, all of those things. You know, I was talking to my staff before the show, and I was said, you know, I travel a lot, and, and now it's not the case. But when I was coming up, churches had the most nasty bathrooms, nasty lobbies, and I kept saying, I know you're not called to be a leader. You can't, because you can't lead the fight in cleaning. Yeah. I need you to lead that fight. I mean, we're not, we're not well, I mean, it's God's house or the people won't do it. Uh, uh, people are smart. And I've heard my leaders say it over and over again, and some of you all may hear them say it today, but leaders, your people will say, Dr. Price, I do it because you do. I say, Nate, because you do. They even want me to go to sleep. They say, because if you stay off, you're going to invent something, you're going to come up with something, there's going to be more work for us. Don't you want to go to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. There was one time, there was once the church was the top of the world. As a matter of fact, many of our inventions today were doing that church aid. I think that we can do that again. I don't think that all of the software needs to be named after fallen angels and failed devils. I just don't. That's just what I think. But we have to do our job. We have to learn and we have to be assertive. You know, that whole thing, we don't have to be, um, you know, we don't have to be abusive, but we can be assertive. You know, people try to tell me various things about how I'm doing it. I'm like, I've done this a long time. I'm going to tell you right now, and I'll research it. So if you're going to help me, then you're going to come with some wonderful counsel. But if you're going to come try to tell me what, no, I'm not. Because another thing that happens as you continue to win your wars and win your battles and rise in your strategy, you get stronger and you become more formidable. And you're less intimidable. So I'm not easily intimidated, not because I think I'm the greatest thing going, I think I have been made by the greatest thing going. I am his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I mean, I'm going to brag on this man. No, he does some stuff. Look at that. The mind he gave me with the life that I had, the childhood that I had, yeah, he better get some problems. Okay, so change is both mandatory and imposed by your position. Then you need to know that. So when you take on... Okay. When you take on a leadership role, your time becomes greatly eroded because of the increased duties and tasks put upon you. Now, you can drop the ball and you can do no-show. It is amazing how many pastors allow no-shows to hold a seat for so long. You know, I don't have a no-show. I get upset about a culture because that's control. We have to manage it. It is not always the people. Sometimes, I, I, and I believe in praying for my people, but you have to pray because there are the habits that must die. There are the mentality that must die. There are certain things that they just 
known as to be a justice for them to do this job. There are so many things. So none of them are speaking to uh, um, abuse. None of them, because, you know, the church can't take strength. You know, we, we define strength as abuse. That's why we got all the church hurt books. Because, see, let me tell you something. You had jobs that treat you worse. And you know what? You put them on your resume as credentials for your ability to do it. But when it goes to a church, it's got to be a book about church hurt. You stayed there to be hurt. Because if you didn't want to, when the first pain comes, you should have took it as a warning shot. I'm out. Or try to figure out what it is. So this is not about that. But I want my leaders strong. And I'll tell you, they'll tell you, I need you all to be strong. Their personality don't bother me one bit until their personality tries to masquerade as a weapon, at which point I'm probably going to act up. But I love their strength. I love my people's strength. I love their ingenuity. I love their creativity. I love their innovation. And you know why I love it? Because that means whatever I need to get done, they're not only bold enough to do it, they're capable of getting it done. And they won't stop until it's finished. That means we can grow and go on to the next thing. If I got a babysitter holding your hand, wipe your nose, and carry on, that is probably not something I want to put you in. With the sheet, you stay here in the pew. Thank you. We need you in the pew because that's ministry work. But if you're going to be on the team, I need you to not be the project. I need you to handle the project. And see, a lot of times we got to take and carry on. I'll spend, they'll tell you, I spend a lot of time, to, you know, nurturing, because I believe in nurturing. But nurture with a purpose and not nurture for excuse. So I'm not going to do that, because I'm not going to tra- I'm not going to confuse nurture with therapy. And you might need some therapy. Okay, at the outset, there just will not be much time left over for the many activities you are engaged in before being promoted. You are now a conspicuous part of a wonderful machine that depends on you for its best operation and profitability. Until you acclimate to your new world, you should anticipate upset, resettlement, Upset and resettlement to the routine. Anything not directly or significantly related to what is expected of you should be thoughtfully weighed against what your new position requires. What you must do, make every effort to do efficiently. Things you have probably done before, those unmanageable in your life, will have, will have to be turned around as they compete for your new life role. Vain, futile, and frustrating activities in and out of your position will have to be carefully rearranged, discarded, or altered. More pains than usual have to be taken to assure there is enough of you to go around and that you do not burn out. Now, so that when you first, I, 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 I'm strong in this, when you first get in leadership, you get mentors. We have mentors in house. I don't need you calling Joe Blow off the Internet to mention your new position when I have mentors. That's why we have advisors programs. We've got all sorts of things in place because I took took pains and steps to make sure everything was in place to assure you succeeded and to set you up for success and not failure. When I I observe that failure seems to be stalking you, dogging your heels, then we go and look at that because sometimes those are familiar spirits. Sometimes they're just old habits. Sometimes they're your fears and your anxieties, whatever it is, and we go through and we look at it. 
And I will, we do have a therapist, and we're getting more, and we will talk with you. So if this is not a, ooh, three strikes you out, I don't believe in that, because I think sometimes great stuff is buried under bad stuff. And if we can deal with the bad stuff, we can unearth that greatness in you. And I tell them that, oh, no, I'm going to harvest this greatness in you, because that is my job. I will harvest this greatness in you. You are not going to fail because failing is your pattern or because failing is your, your history or your training. If you're going to fail, you're going to fail on your own merit. And if you're going to succeed, you're going to succeed <clears throat> on your own merit. So we talked about the study the man. We're going to talk next about whether you're operating on desire or determination. Because you can want it. You know, we, 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 I hear so many people say, well, you know, the Bible says to desire the gift of the bishop is a good thing. Desire is one thing, but are you determined to get it and be good at it? Because people have desires all day long. Desire is just a fire of inspiration that is meant to become motivation. So you need to know that. So do you desire to be a leader, or are you determined to be a leader? And if you're determined, why? What do you expect to get? What will people get from you that they couldn't get from another leader? And can you paint that picture for them in such a way that they yield their will to you? Because you understand leadership is about getting people to yield their will to you. I know we said getting jobs done to people before we can get them to the reason we get them to do the job is leadership is about getting people to yield their will to you. It's a volitional thing. So volitionally, they say, I'm going to follow you because you're where I want to go or you're what I want to give my strength to. I don't know about you, but I think they're good. But they're good. I got to get some. Okay. There you go. Cues from the audience. <clears throat> and then driving diligence. What drives you? Because people will only do their best by what's driving them inside and what they call best. Sometimes we have to reshape and redefine what people call good because some people call done good. You know, we got to say done beats none. In some cases, that's good. But in other cases, none beats done. Especially where harm, credibility, and respect and compliance and legitimacy are at risk. Then none can be done. You have to make those judgments. You have to make those calls. And then I call them the seeds of successful uh, leadership: confidence, compatibility, capability, and um, and confidence, compatibility, capability, and competence. You know, the church does not speak about competence. Two things: we, they speak about confidence. You need to be bold in the Lord and in the power of His might. When we come to compatible. We put people, misplaced people all the time because we have no real system for determining where they should be placed or measuring their success, engaging their potential in a particular position. We should do that as leaders. If you want to win, you can't win with question marks. You have to win with answers. If you want to be good at what you do, you have to be good at choosing. There's a section that we'll talk about at another time talk about how to choose, because sometimes it's just that you did everything right. You set it up right. You got the right equipment. You got the right facility, and you didn't choose the right person, or you didn't place those you chose where they would be most effective and most successful, and that's important. 
So that you have to think about that. And then we have the last one, resolved and ready. Are you ready to do the job, or are you going to live in a constant celebratory mindset? Celebratory leaders don't ever do the job because they're always celebrating. And when they get an opportunity, they're auditioning so they can celebrate again. And so there is a mindset of leaders where they are, you know, some are capable, but you have these celebratory leaders who are always about celebrating their arrival. I'm here. Look, guys, I'm here. Look what I can do because I'm here. But that is not going to lead your people. Your people will eventually be put off by that because they will always see you as a rival. And you're always competing for their attention. Or you most times just take what is due them. They're earned attention. And they earn response or celebration for yourself. So I have a section on celebratory leaders, leaders that do nothing but celebrate themselves. All the time. You hear the resume, resume nonstop. You hear how they did this and how they did and they're always celebrating. Now, remember, celebrations are past. They, you celebrate the past. You don't celebrate the future because it's not promised. So you're always in that leader's past. Some of you all, I bet you like that. So, and, and the leader that's celebrating is a, is a leader that is not doing the job. They're experiencing. They're living a fantasy. Celebratory leaders live by fantasy. Not even fascination. What they imagine the job to be, what they imagine. And they're always living by fantasized intent. And so you should know that. Listen to your people and find out how, how it works. Find out, for example, how well they're going to work with the people. How much of the people's regard will they garner? how the people appreciate the followers. I know you say, well, you know, it's not all about the people. Yeah, it is. It's about the people who get the time. It's, it's important that the people are able to get it done. So if you are not a celebratory leader, then you are a conquering leader and a commanding one. And command's not a bad word. It's the verbiage of the command that we need to be concerned about. But command is we have command sessions. I mean, it's needful. So many times I listen and I'm like, and watch how the people feel. Under a celebratory leader, the people feel un- they feel unjustly treated. They feel as if their labors are in vain. There's no hope because the ego of the celebratory leader is so huge. They have no room to acknowledge anybody else. They have no room to do anything but assign people projects and then take credit for them. Because you're a celebratory leader. That's what you do. And so I, you know, and I, I look at that and I pay attention to it. So I want to know how people trust the leaders that I found. Because I tell them in a minute, we have an approval rating. You have to have a 90% approval rating. Because if the people don't like you, they're not going to work for you. They're not, or they're going to sabotage you left and right. And if they sabotage my leadership choice, they're sabotaging my organization. And I need to prevent that. Does this help all of you? And so uh, that's a big deal. How ready are you? So we're coming to the end. The real world of leadership, a wake-up for new and young leaders. So let's look at this. Leadership places enormous and stunning stunning demands upon you. What you thought it would mean to be out front and highly visible is not what it is. Your prior notions of leadership 
saw its work from a mainly public appearance view and add to that co-worker criticism. So if you know, because if you got a new supervisor, man, I really think you're good. I don't. Well, you need to find out why they don't. Because why they don't may not be fair, may not be logical. It may be totally subjective. And their subjectivity should not hinder your objectivity. Promotion to leadership alters followers' views existence. Handling job handling the job appears more skillful when you're on the inside because you are on the other side. So you used to say, ah, that's just dumb. He's just a kiss up. This person is just a drunk. I'm not doing that. Till you get inside, and you realize what your functions are tied to, and how they fit in that as a spoke in the cog of that organization. Um, running and operation. So you have the hub, your place is a spoke. Now, where is it? And how you handle that determines how well you do your job or whether you say this was a mistake. I've seen a lot of people say this was a mistake. I'm out. Again, fantasy, fascinated leadership. So you could have leaders who are fascinated, and then you can have leaders who fantasize, and then you have the celebrity. Mm. And those are important. And we go through them in the program. Remember, if you're interested in this entire course, you do want to go to ChristUniversity.org and begin the process of enrollment. This is a great, great tool for you, and we have many, many more to come. But what you're getting, excerpts. What I just read to you comes out of six pages. Holding. Okay. Um, lastly, Leading in leadership quickly takes hold to soften your followers' judgment and conviction. You once judged your leaders and supervisors harshly. Now you're there. All of a sudden, you're compassionate. You're empathetic. You're understanding because you realize the pressure that they're under. You know, it's easy to, to watch a move, but it's involved to produce one. And so it's easy to critique what's produced, but it takes a particular wisdom to attempt to meet the needs of all of your viewers. Just not that easy. Here's our last one. You are now the one. I think that's it. Wait a minute. Hold on. I didn't finish. Leadership, leadership places is enormous and stunning demands upon people in general. You quickly find out how what you thought it would mean to be out front and highly visible is only a fraction of the job. Your prior notions of leadership saw its work from a mainly a primarily public perspective. The reality of your promotion, no doubt, has altered that view extensively. The people you formerly admired or criticized look, look quite impressive in their leadership role. Their apparent handling of the job appears more skillful than when you first judged, judged them and <clears throat> judged it to be because being on the other side, you clearly see what it takes for them to carry out their duties day in and day out. A real-world vision of what it's like in leadership quickly takes hold to soften your previous judgment and conviction on others' service. I'm, I'm in, I'm not, because now you're the one. This is what's going to get You're the one. You are now the one. You are now the one, friend or comforter, Term leader. You're it. You are now the one they criticize you for taking your promotion seriously. You're now the one. 
they now fear the inherent authority of your position because they know that you know their secrets, you came up from their ranks, you know their secrets, you know their habits, you know their plans, you know what they do, you know their tricks, you know their scorn. So you're now the one. So they fear you because they don't know what you're going to do with this brand new power. You're loyal to them. Your coworkers must give way to fidelity to the organization and trusting you with its vision and its purpose. Former coworkers know what it means to them. They have lived it before. They've watched others come up from their right. The first thing you're going to have to deal with is envy. They're going to be envious, and envy is not always frontal. Envy is often insidious. So you're going to have to understand that green-eyed monster, not from the classic definition or you don't like my hair or you don't like my cut or you don't like my bill. That's not the envy. The envy is I don't like that you were chosen above me, and I don't like the fact that I must now submit my will to you or pretend to. Your promotion in, in their eyes changes changes. <coughs> Uh, and, and it's not guaranteed to work to their advantage. They realize that as a friend, you all are on the same side. You cared about their best interest. They cared about you. You shared lies. You shared excuses. You shared games. You shared hopes. You shared dreams. You shared family uh, stories and anecdotes and all of that. Not happening in your new position. Now, you'll try. Oh, you'll try. You, but you, what you're going to find out is that the day you're made a leader and you go to the cafeteria, and you take your trusty little tray, and you go just sit down with them. Everything goes quiet because you are now on the other side. And now it is, you are the them that they crucify all the time at lunch. But they don't trust you because they know you're going to take something back. They don't trust you. So eventually, you're going to have to stop going to lunch with them, or they're going to start going to places you can't find them. Because they don't trust you. You can say leadership won't change you all day long, but it will change those around you, and it will change your subordinates, the people who have to follow you and follow your lead. Last statement, and then we're going to open it up for some questions. Ah, aren't you excited? We're opening it up for questions. You are now the one that gets to recover from the estrangement of those who once loved and appreciated you. You are now the friend or coworker turned leader that they are withdrawing from one by one. Those who you well, those who knew you well, now criticize you for taking seriously what you were promoted to do. Some of them are angry because you took the job. How about that? Taking seriously what you were promoted to do, either by avoiding you or shortening their encounters with you. Why? Because they now fear what the inherent um, authority of your position, imagining themselves, what it can, it can and may do to them, particularly its potential to harm them in the future. Their concerns are not entirely baseless. Your loyalty to them must of necessity give way to the organization and trusting you with their leadership. It does not matter that you are unsure of what your appointment to leadership means. Those you will lead have no such confusion. They have no doubt about what it means to them today, tomorrow, or next year. They have lived this experience more than once and have seen that leadership is different for them than it is for the leader. They know that at any given point in time, you will do what you must 
despite what you may feel about them as a friend or as a companion. They have felt the end of the struggle you now have with past friendships and new demands, and they are not deluded about it. They know it can turn out for them, for their good or not, if you are committed to your position. If you do not, they still have reason to be concerned, for if you fail to make the right choices concerning them, either way, your promotion in their eyes means changes that are not guaranteed to work to their advantage. I really wanted to spend time, and I will be doing this more frequently, giving you the practicum, the practice and the pragma of being in leadership regardless. And I, these are things that my team have studied. They've learned. They've have, they have quizzes. They have tests. And they have to do it all because I don't want God to be the only one who knows what they're going to do in the position I appoint them to. I want to know. I want to have a good sense of what they're going to do, how their decision-making works, the lines of thinking that they're accustomed to. I need to know that, how they respond to crises, how they respond to difficulties, how lackadaisical or industrious they are. Those things should not be discovered in the position in front of your people so that they wonder why you chose that person. I'm ready for questions on Facebook. I'm ready to. You can give us some questions. Hallelujah. And I have some folks here who have questions. And if you all have any one of you all have a question, just stand right there with them. Come on and ask your question. I, 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 and we cannot allow that. No, no, we cannot. Ready? She'll tell you what to say so we can get your question. Um, no, don't have to. Because it's going to be, I think it's going to be too crowded. Yeah. Come forward, though, because the light. Oh, the light. Yeah, the, the light, light is in my eyes. Oh, okay. All right. You might have to turn the button. Okay, Dr. Price. Uh, we're discussing um, apostles that are organic, mm-hmm. which are the apostles that uh, you produce. Yes. Yeah. Versus the apostles that are cultural, could you give us an example of what a um, cultural apostle looks like and how they function in today's society? Absolutely. Very good question. Um, the cultural apostle will look like culture. There'll be no difference between them and culture. They'll be, but in, in today's world, they're going to be tatted up. They're going to have trendy hairdos. They're going to be pierced up. They're going to wear very form-fitting clothing. They're going to speak about the liberty um, liberation from Jesus' modesty, liberation from the church rule. They're going to call it Jesus, a church and not Jesus. They're going to uh, permit a lot of uh, uncleanness. They're going to permit it and they're going to sanction it because in their mind, we're not religious, we're not legalistic. So they will, the only reason that you would call them an apostle is because that's what they say. And then Jesus, I mean, Paul talked about these false apostles who are messengers of Satan who transform themselves into messengers of life. So you will know them. He said you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their conversation. You'll know them by their lack of penitence. They're always impenitent. They're hard-hearted about this because their job is to make sure that you are liberated from Jesus Christ, whom they feel 
makes life and religion hard. There you go. <laughs> Anyone else who's next? And are we getting any online? Okay. Why don't we go to one online and then we'll go to the next in the studio. Okay. Um, first of all, Tina really would like to know what Quartz is from. Obviously, we have Yeah. Well, it's from uh, our leadership training. It's also part of the AITR Apostles and Training Program, and it's also a part, excerpts of it are part of Prophetic Ed in Price University. Okay. Just. Just leave Scotland, she asked, what if you are appointed to a position you know you are capable of doing but don't like being seen? Well, if it's the <laughs> if the position that you are appointed to requires you to be visual as opposed to being behind the scenes, then you have to weigh whether or not you should do it. Um, if you don't like being seen, it's because of shyness. And, hey, a lot of leaders and a lot of public figures are shy. They overcome that shyness for the sake of the duty or the call that they've taken on. But that's number one. Number two, you might need some coaching. You might. I would encourage you to call our offices at PPM Global Resources, go, to, go online and sign up for a couple of advisements so that we could kind of mentor you through that so that you don't miss opportunities to fulfill your destiny simply because of a hindrance or an impediment you picked up as a child. So I, I don't want, I wouldn't want to say don't do it because we all started out a little uncomfortable and a little shy, but you don't have to let that be the reason why you can't fulfill purpose and destiny. Good question. Okay, I have a leadership question. So what are your thoughts on leaders are made, not born versus born and not made? And the reason why I ask is because you know, just even my time that I spent on Wall Street, I came across certain bosses where I could tell that they had those natural capabilities and others, I'm looking at them like, how are you even making $500,000 if you don't even <laughs> fit the qualifications? So obviously they've gotten, you know, went through the ranks, et cetera, went through the various trainings, but you could still see that it didn't really take. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I love the question. Um, I, I, I personally think that, Everybody can be trained to do whatever it is that they want to do in a leadership role. It is the level and rank of that role that comes into question. I know that leaders, born leaders, training flourishes them. They absolutely exhibit a wisdom, an instinctual wisdom of a comprehension of human nature and, and, and humanity in that situation. So they have that ability. It just flows from them. And they can't shut it off. Like, they're always mentoring. They're always nurturing. They're always strategizing. They're always doing it. But they don't do the strategic, the mechanical functions of the position devoid of or indifferent to those people who must help them get it done. They don't. They don't. They tend to not bark orders. I mean, even if they are, even if they tend to be very strong, harsh, um, I want to say firm and stern, then they're not cruel because they human assets, human capital matters to them because they know if I run this car in the ground, I'm not going to be able to get it done. Now, 
that, that same compassion can carry over to those who are not born leaders. But leaders who are not born tend to be very technical, very mechanical. They tend to be very rudimentary and, 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 and very needed because they don't have that, 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 that human expanse of ability to, do, to step outside the line. So they're very, and they tend to be bossy. They tend to be bossy because they don't, they're not sure if they can get people to do the job or not without wielding a heavy rod. They're just unsure. Now, they're not unsure in their leadership because they trust their training, but everything is about their training. They're almost textbook in perception, textbook in response, and whatever. What the born leaders are aggravating folks in many ways because they know what to call them and cut outside the line when they discern that the textbook did not tap into this particular issue. I think we need both. I think we need both, but I think that at the top, all folks at the top need to be born leaders. They need to be born if they're going to birth and beget other leaders and if they're going to get the, the benefit and the assets out of those leaders that are trained or that they're training. So born leaders can train leaders, and they can train them, and they can be very effective. But in the end, the mechanical leader is only going to facilitate the training he or she has. So if a person who in one environment is growing and showing those leadership qualities and um, then they are in another environment that they're being kind of stagnant but still showing those leadership qualities but being stagnated, will God have that person in that um, particular environment for a season just to um, show them uh, show them a certain things that they're supposed to get from that in that organization? Well, it is true. It is true that God will keep you in uncelebrated, unacknowledged positions and roles for a season to, for your own benefit to acquaint you and to familiarize you. But usually I, I've learned two things. If you're in that role, he's, not, he's going to close you. People aren't going to see you. I don't care how hard you work. You can say the same thing somebody else just said, come up with the same idea, but it is not. God's time to get glory for what you're doing because it's either um, a, a fragmented, it's underdeveloped, needs a lot more nurturing. But the, another point I want to point out, we don't like it, but it's true, and that is self-honesty and emotional honesty. Many times people see your talents. They see the gifts. They're impressed by them, but they know you're loose cannon. They know that you can't control your emotions. They know that you can't manage the next level of what you do. So you're good here, but if I throw this on you, you're going to crumble. They may know that you're not reliable. You're not credible because you're not reliable. For example, it is not uncommon for extraordinarily talented people to be difficult to work with and untrustworthy in leadership because they won't show up on time. They won't do the paperwork. They won't follow through on the things they're supposed to do. They don't clean up their stuff. They will always argue with someone else. They are situational excellence. And I, I use the phrase situational excellence because it's psycho-emotional excellence. You're motivated by what you feel. Oh, I woke up today. I feel good. I'm going to clean my whole thing. I'm going to clean my closet. I'm going to get my work done. I'm going to organize my files. And then you wake up a bad day. I don't know. I don't even know. I have this job. I'm not interested. And when you have a bad day, someone else has to do your job. So they already know that you're an unjust leader because you don't care about the other people around you who are relying on your excellence. So they know you're unfair. They know that. And so when, when you 
when you are uh, that person where you said, I'm as good, and I, I've heard people say, I used to say, I'm as good as anybody else here. And you might be good in that task. You may be superior in that particular action, function. But when it comes to the wisdom, the rationale, decision-making, choices, when it comes to dependability, when it comes to concern for those people above you, beneath you, and around you, you lack that because it's all about you. That's a very self-absorbed excellence. It's about me. You know, it's about what I did. And people that you need too much affirmation, celebrated. See, you need to be celebrated too much for us to get your best. We can't get your best. See, it's one thing to be to say I'm encouraging. It's another thing that needs to be celebrated. That's extreme. That means step one, you're going to do it. You're going to come back. Look, I did so-and-so. Okay, wonderful, right? You're going to do Step three. And, and so you become, your celebratory needs become nuisance. And so you have to decide. You have to ask yourself. And, and, and not only that, look at the other people that they are respecting. Look and see what they do. Instead of looking at them through the eye of criticism, through envy, look at them and see what is it that they do that you don't do. Because you'll be surprised that you're not as good as you think you are because people look for good and good stands out. So you may be, um, you may be impressive. You may have a better talent, but you're good, as Jesus said, is often evil spoken of. Because people are like, she's good, but when well, he's great, but see, they have to put that condition on the, in conjunction on their observation, there is a breakdown. So if you want to be considered good, a man will bless himself, but it's, you're valued by what others say of you. And if people keep saying that they, so-and-so is better, you are never there, you're, now you always have problems, you always have crises, your talent is eclipsed by your emotionality and by your inability to manage your work. It's kind of like, this is my talent. Let's call my talent the room that I'm painting. Your talent is there. You've got good wallpaper. You've got extraordinary pieces, deco pieces. They're great. But you know what? You didn't finish the room. The door is not hung. The knob is on the wrong place. The, 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 uh, you know, the beams are not right. We can go on. So all we have is this lovely piece of furniture you got in the middle, and everything surrounding it is dysfunctional. Does that help? Uh, Martin would like to know, what's the first step in preparing for the leadership role? If you're talking in general, well, I, don't, I won't even say in general. Every first step begins with confirming you are a leader. You should lead, and folks should trust your lead. So those are some questions, and that speaks to an assessment. It may speak to an interview. You know, it may speak to reading a book. Sometimes reading books are a, a, a softer impact on your um, deficit, your knowledge deficit, and your lack of comprehension. So the first thing you need to find out is, are you, should you lead? Are you a leader for real? Do you meet the classic qualifications? Can you be trained to lead? Are you trainable? A lot of people aren't trainable. They just aren't. I, and, and, and I found way too many Christians, particularly in the charismatic, apostolic, prophetic circle, they, they talk too much. They are always defending themselves. And so we're not in defense, we're in celebration, or they're always trying to prove they don't need you. 
So you have to ask yourself, am I trainable? And then you have to ask yourself, do I have the demeanor? Do I exude the, the demeanor that makes people want to follow me? And then after that, will I benefit any organization as a lead? So before we get into all of that, spending all of that money on the 10 steps too and the three points up and all of that, you need to find out if that's for you because not everybody's a leader and there is nothing wrong with being a follower, a good follower, because every good follower has other people watching them and following their lead. You know, and I say to my staff, because, you know, moody people make lousy leaders and folks ain't working for moody bosses, don't you? You don't know who you're going to meet on Monday and what you're going to end up saying goodbye to on Friday. And, and they can make your life terrible, turbulent. You know, they're mad today, and that today it's yes, and tomorrow it's no, and today they want to communicate, tomorrow they don't, today they want to socialize, tomorrow they want to criticize. Moody people make lousy leaders, and I'll tell you something, temperament's very important, because what people may have to sacrifice a little bit for your experience or for your, your uh, capability, the competence, it makes up for it. People want to follow up these people unless you work for devils and your organization's about devils and then depression and moodiness and moroseness. Those are what they need. They don't want you cheery in those environments. But people, as a rule, want to follow cheery people, positive people, upbeat people, people, leaders who, who hold, the, hold the reins, toe the line, but make them feel good about it, you know? lighthearted environment. Instead of, you know, criticizing people, they then identify a strengthener. Okay, so I'm going to need to give you some strength training in that and some strengthens in that. So you have got to recognize that you cannot be moody and morose and depressed or negative and think that people are going to follow you because that attitude, you at the head, you rain down that as morale. And it, it, it literally affects their morale. So that would be my, my second step. My third one would be then get training and be trainable and do your homework. You know, we get people who wonder, well, God told me to do it. And the first two homework we give them, they don't. <laughs> because they've been told that God doesn't need it. All you need is the anointing. We need to change that rhetoric and we need to change that criteria because anointing is the last thing you get. When a politician runs for office, the last thing that a politician gets is anointing and then inauguration. That's fine. That's like, and the last thing Jesus gave his apostles was what? Endowment with power from on high. The first thing he gave them was training. And the last thing he gave them was anointing. And now we're making the anointing the centerpiece of it all. Anyone else? Come on. How How are my Facebook people doing? Good. And we'll go to them next. What are some of the indicators that an apostle um, that is struggling right now in the Ecclesia uh, needs to uh, enter into the AIT program? Like, where things are not working. I know where things drew me to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was a frustration, irritation, with no real identity. I could identify with pastor, evangelist, teacher, <laughs> and all of that. But the uh, working, um, of the potency and the identification of what I was supposed to be empowered to do was just lacking. And I prayed as you appeared. I did. Yes, you did. So I was asking the question because I know a lot of apostles don't like to go into training or just think that they're born into it, they can do it by book, 
But I think the program is very potent. I've gone through a lot of uh, changes and things that I just have never encountered, and I've been out here a long time. <laughs> and uh, I think that if you kind of help address what are some of the indicators that a failing apostle or apostle is struggling, mm -hmm. the symptoms that what they may have right now uh, could drive them to enter into this uh, AIT program. The first thing that um, they need to do is be honest about where they are emotionally because apostles are natural warriors. They, they, as a matter of fact, they will not move until they are down and almost out. Apostles are going to be that dog on his back fighting the, the lion, fighting the bear until they can fight no more. And that's just their, their basic makeup. Now, the intelligent ones will say, I'll go and come back and fight another day. And in, while they're gone, they're going to explore their strengths. They're going to explore their deficits. They're going to revisit every one of their experiences, their initiatives, their, op, uh, their objects, their objectives, their agenda. They're going to explore that and to really, I, I have a section in the AIT program, you haven't gotten to it yet, called Autopsying Your Failures. You need to autopsy your failures, you know, because if, 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 you, if you keep saying I'm trying it, then it's not dead. But some things, once you have to know why it needs to stay dead and why you may be able to use the body parts for some eyes or corneas and things like that. But in the end, that failure is real. And so you need to autopsy your failures. I had to do that for four years. And I mean, and God called it an autopsy. I was like, okay. And he, I had to go and really do that intense exact examination that extended to including my motives, including my mentality, including my reasons and rationale. So that's the second thing I would suggest, that you do those, those autopsies, because if you don't, you never close them out. And they keep coming back. They just keep coming back, or they keep reading the library of future, of future failures. So you don't want that. So then the next thing, that after I've done that, then you have to take inventory of who you are and how you are. I've not released it yet, but I have 101 points of, of faculties, features, and attributes of an apostle. You know, because people think that I'm, you know, well, does she really know? I do know. And they're not based on my feelings. They're based on hard data, hard research, forensic studies. They're based on that. So I, I, it's a pathologist. And so I, I, I know that you need to take an inventory of yourself. Then you have to measure, you have to also do the same kind of work as you study the criteria of apostles, and not by those that are out there, because we have yet to see the apostles operating the way Jesus Christ trained his. Once you take, your, your, you take that inventory of who you are, of your abilities, your capital, and your, what you bring to the office, and then what the office actually requires and fails, and what it, what it, um, what it, uh, uh, what it, how it's built. I want to say just its construction. Once you do that, you begin to match the two. You can match. You can do self-matching. You can match the two. Well, the, the apostles. Now we have to start with the apostles of Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you how to be an apostle of darkness. I cannot tell you how to be an apostle of culture. I, that is not my calling, and I'm not stepping into that arena. But I'm telling you that if we're talking about being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, these are the things you do. Now, once you measure yourself, then you have to figure out, do you have enough of this or enough of that to make this happen in office? Do you, can you do this and can you do that? So now we've done that part. And then the most important thing, which
which apostles don't like, and only reason you don't like training is because you probably skate. Apostles are brilliant people, so you skate through life without it. You circumvented it, so you don't have to. But see, the office that Jesus Christ started has to win. God is not about failing, and He's not about. And he's not just talking about material wins. Much of what we call apostles today is about a material win. God is not about a material win. He's about the eternal win. He's about the the sovereignty of Christ being injected and imposed on this world. So that's a different kind of win. So that being the case, you still can't get away from training. Jesus taught the 12 apostles. I can't even understand what theologian came up with that statement that he did. The people were in class with him all the time. Those 12 apostles were with Jesus, and they put in something that we could calculate today as 15,000 hours of training with the maker of heaven and earth. See, they say that because Jesus is not God to them. They say that because he's not creator. They say that because he's just a guy, a good guy with some philosophical teachings and, and, and a nice, you know, some nice principles and values for life. That is not who those 12 apostles were trained by. And then the man dies, comes back and puts him into 40 more days of post-resurrection training. And then tells them, now, all of that's good, but your training is dormant until you are endued with power from on high. So your training is purely academic. And so now, if we want to make this training systemic, if we want to make this training potent, if we want to make this training useful, dispensable, then you need to be endued with power from on high. And Paul says, because the word of God is not in word only, but in power. So those are the steps. That's what I would, that's what our AIP program is based on, and, and that's how we do it step by step. Um, how, how am I doing here? Am I running short? Do I have time for one more question? One more. James Fox would like to know, what is your thought on starting a hub where apostolic prophetic people can gather, receive training, and be released? Well, I'm already doing it. So I guess my thought is that I'm doing it. Now, should others do it? I believe that if that's what God gave you to do, you should do it, and you should do it well. But you also need to know that you're setting yourself up as a superior. And if you are, then you need to make sure you can deliver on what people are gathering to you to get. So, because we like to start things up because it makes us the leader, but we don't we don't know if we have leadership potential, leadership ability, leadership skills. We don't know that. But just but when you start something as a founder of necessity, it makes you the leader. People will look to you for things that you either have or don't have, and you need to make sure that you have them because. Sometimes you thought it, you never get people's trust again. Amen? Okay, I've got time. I got it. Okay. Should leaders self assess themselves beyond surveys, or should they have their metrics and staples measure the success of their program? Uh, I think that self assessment happens when you, when you decide or you realize that this is you or that you're exhibiting or you're, you're um, behaving a certain way. That's needful. But self-assessment is, is just part of the deal. You know, I'm writing right now a book on self-assessment right now. I'm, I'm in the middle of finishing, well, not finishing, but getting it started. Let me not mislead. Um, but even if you self-assess, you have to recognize that your self-assessment is going to celebrate yourself or it's going to over-criticize yourself. 
So either way, either extreme is likely. You still need that independent, objective third party, or if it's just yourself, second party, who can can say this is right, this is not right, or this is you, this is not you. That's why I developed the assessment, the minister's assessment questionnaire, the prophetic um, aptitude questionnaire, and also the apostles' diagnostic. I developed them so that you would have objective criteria and objective metrics to measure yourself by so that your gauging and the gauging of the field or the industry are somehow or another able to be compared with each other. I think I think that's probably right. You got another one? I have one more. One more. But one more. Hey, yay for the one more. How do you handle your circle changing as a leader? Huh. That is a superb question. And I think it's a great one to close out on. You handle your, cir- uh, your circle changing as a leader by equipping yourself, preparing yourself to change. Leadership, unless it's impulsive, where, you know, all say somebody laid hands on you rashly, suddenly, um, leadership is never a surprise. People are groomed for leadership if it's a quality organization. You're groomed for leadership. And, and that grooming has, uh, has preparing you to ultimately be appointed to step into that position. That is normal. So while you're in the grooming, don't just stay with the academia. Don't just stay with the practicum. Also prepare yourself to have to shift. If you're, if you're good in your training, the, the separation has already happened because you don't have time, you, are, you, don't, you have too many other responsibilities, you find that your interests are changing, your conversations changing. So that's the first thing. I want to say to everyone, but even to leaders and those who appoint them, but the family needs to be included in the process because it's the family that takes people out of leadership. So you need to include the spouse. You need to include the children. They need to know the changes. And they need to, they need to find out if they're supportive or not. Now, that isn't a reason for the person to do it or not do it, but it is a good reason for the, the, the upcoming leader to develop strategies and develop coping mechanisms and, and commerce that they can use to stay in the game. So that's it. The other thing is that you're going to have to stop. Um, you can tell people, you know what? I'm changing. My life is going in another direction. It doesn't have to be this, this, and I'm back. My life is going in another direction, and it's taking more of my time. It's turning my attention. It's turning my interest into another way. And you should do that if you plan to succeed. Again, but if you decide to be the one that says leadership won't change, you're in a crisis. Well, I'm almost done. Hey, it's time to sell. Dr. Paula Price, uh, Rachel's going to put everything up there. You can sow to me. I'm sure this was a blessing. And so you can sow your seed today. Rachel, go on and tell them how we do. Okay. You can give on Cash App. It's dollar sign Dr. Paula Price. Or you can do text to give, 918-203-6625. Or you can also go on PayPal at PayPal. Paula Price. I'm excited. So, and I want to thank all of you who have sown and been sowing regularly. I bless you. I release the harvest on your seed. I want to tell you we'll be together Sunday at the Congregation of the Mighty where God stands, 8 o'clock Sunday school, 10 o'clock service. In the meantime, have a blessing and share this. Share, 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 and use it for your own training and development. God bless you.